This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone listening to this show knows the reason why casualties were so high during the Civil War. It was that invention of the rifled musket, the use of old-style Napoleonic tactics with new technology that caused a blundering generation of officers to lead their men into endless bloodbaths from Shiloh to the wilderness. Well, that's the old story. Revision takes its course. Today, we'll look at a new possibility for why the battles were so indecisive, so uh, bloody and stalemated, and what the officers in charge were doing and thought they were doing. The book we'll look at is West Pointers in the Civil War, The Old Army in War and Peace. The author, Wayne Wysang Shea, he'll be our guest today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you on a cold and blustery Friday afternoon in December 2011. It's our last show for the calendar year. We'll be back bright and early in January. Coming to you as always from... Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, high atop the third of four floors of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, just off of 10th Street in Greenville, North Carolina. But as always, not speaking for the university, and our guest will not speak for the university or anyone other than himself. That's how we do it uh, here at Civil War Talk Radio on World Talk Radio. The last show of the year is upon us, but the new year will start shortly afterward. We'll be back with new shows in January, starting January 13. Dwight Pitt-Cafley, the former chief historian of the National Park Service, will be with us then. There will be another uh, week hiatus as the department chairs go on their annual retreat uh, for a a, a night of, of carousing and discussing interesting topics like retention and diversity and all the other things that concern us. Uh, Andrea Farogi, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, I apologize, will join us to uh, the following week from Union College talking uh, about a collection of letters from a Minnesota couple, a soldier and his wife that she's edited uh, and done some other work. And going forward in the year 2012, we'll hear from Don McHugh at the Lincoln Shrine, Jason Phillips. Adam Aronson, and numerous other interesting folks talking to us about the Civil War. You can learn about these shows by visiting 
impedimentsofwar.org. It's the website that uh, supports the show. It's produced by Mark Gaffney, the webmaster. While you're there, click on the donation button, send $20 or more uh, to CivilWarTR at AOL.com, and that funding goes to keep the website going, and some of it goes to me to keep whiskey in the jar, or actually to buy books is what it's theoretically for. So it's not tax deductible, because I can do whatever I want with it. Um, so so check out the website. It is still the, the coolest thing on the entire interweb, uh, impedimentsofwar.org. Some excellent graphics of Civil War figures listening to their iPods and Walkman and other devices, not not widely known that uh, that was going on. They were listening to the show as they were conducting the war. But enough of what's going on in the past. We're moving into the present. It's a Friday here at uh, East Carolina, uh, and it's the last Friday, well, second to last Friday of the semester. It's exam week is what I'm trying to say. I'm stumbling over my sentences because I've was up early uh, proctoring the final exam at 8 a.m. this morning and uh, spending the rest of the day in all kinds of uh, administration. Our department is currently trying to figure out how to replace three people with two positions uh, as the state cuts back its funds, and there's a lot of uh, infighting and politicking going on as we decide what to do. It uh, Hopefully it's all in, in good uh, spirit with everyone promoting the best interest of the department. Uh, but uh, you have to watch those academics. There, there's a tendency to let the personal slip in there. I know it's hard to imagine academics being anything less than perfectly idealistic. Uh, but now that the rhetoric of, of budget reductions has been transformed into the reality of lost positions uh, here in the department, uh, the gloves are coming off and uh, people are claiming this and that, and a disgruntled minority, uh, if they have not emerged yet, I expect shortly will emerge to uh, insist that it's my fault uh, that somehow the economic collapse of 2008 and the subsequent decline in tax revenues and everything else ought to be assigned to to my responsibility uh, as department chair, and if I could be replaced, that would fix everything. It's not it's not a good case, if you ask me, but uh, I, I would wish well to whoever else wanted to try this. But in the meantime, I'm still here uh, and plan to be here uh, for a long time, uh, certainly at Civil War Talk Radio indefinitely. Uh, it, it's been a, a great fall season. There have been some wonderful guests. Uh, it, it's been a reinvigorating eighth season of the show, and, and I've enjoyed the emails from people and... Uh, uh, and even gifts. Uh, earlier this week, I received a large box in the mail, and it was a package of old New Yorker magazines. Uh, apparently, I had mentioned on one of the past 200 episodes how my wife and I would uh, browse through these, uh, the bound copies of old New Yorkers in the undergraduate library at the University of Michigan when we were dating eating a bag of Dutch mints from Drake's candy shop uh, and looking at the the advertisements and uh, uh, cartoons of a bygone era. Uh, I don't remember mentioning that, but I can't imagine how else that could have turned up. Uh, but an alert listener who had been going through some of the old archived shows uh, 
boxed up a bunch of old New Yorkers and sent them here. Uh, and I have not even seen them since they got in the house because uh, my wife Emily took them up uh, and has, has been squirreled them away and been looking at them and enjoying them herself. I'll see if I can maybe uh, get a peek at them uh, this evening. But thanks uh, for, for the, the kind and, and thoughtful gift and for all the good feedback over the past year. And we'll look forward to coming back uh, in 2012 with more interesting uh, shows and, uh, and, and stories and guests, uh, which is how we're going to end the year today with uh, the book West Pointers and the Civil War, The Old Army in War and Peace. Uh, author is Dr. Wayne Y. Sang Shea. Uh, Wayne, are you there? Yes, I am, Jerry. Good good to hear from you. I'm, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing your last name quite right. Can you uh, help me out with it? It's pretty close, Shea. Yeah. Uh, Shia. Okay. Yes. Sort of one syllable. Just get it right in there. It's spelled H-S-I-E-H for listeners who are right now going to Amazon and, and lining up a copy, which I hope many of them are. Um, so, uh, Wayne, you and I got to meet this past summer at Gettysburg uh, at the uh, the Civil War Institute, and uh, we got to talk a little bit, uh, but I'm looking forward to the chance to hear more about this book, but share with our, our listeners a little bit about your own background. Uh, how did you come to study the Civil War? Okay. Uh, first off, Jerry, I just want to thank you for, for being such a gracious host, for inviting me to come onto this program. Um, and for the, you know, the last, a little trepidation, I'm the last of the year, so I hope, <laughs> I, hope I hope good. I fulfill expectations, <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, I, uh, I, I guess my, I, I guess it is perhaps, I would like to think at least, maybe a little bit interesting how I, I came to study the Civil War. Um, as, uh, if for anyone who doesn't know, the reason why my name is so tricky, I'm actually of, of ethnic Chinese background. My family is actually from Taiwan. I was actually born in Taiwan. And then we came to the United States when I was just an infant. So I've, I've more or less grown up. But of course, I, I grew up in Southern California. In, the, in a heavily ethnic Chinese suburb of Los Angeles, so this is hardly a traditional uh, <laughs> Civil War uh, buff territory. But what what really got me interested in the war, I think, is um, I think I was probably maybe just eleven or twelve, and I happened to be browsing the uh, small, but at that time for me uh, expansive library at Ramona Elementary School, and discovered Bruce Cadding. Uh and uh, and there is a, a scene, uh, I actually haven't been able to locate this. I wonder if I have a garbled memory where I think uh, Cadding, I think at Shallow, uh, although I can't find it right now, uh, where there's, uh, he describes bodies with, uh, with uh, the peach blossoms falling down on them. So, um, and I, I've, so I've always had, and then I had the good fortune of having good history instructors through, through public schools um, and certainly through my time uh, as an undergraduate at Yale and certainly at the University of Virginia. So I've always had an interest in war, uh, in the Civil War. I've always had an interest in the military aspects of it. Um, and when, uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, I was searching for a, a military history topic, um, and, uh, and this one, me and Gary Gallagher, I don't remember if it was either him or me who suggested it, uh, but one of us did, and it seemed like a good topic because it was one of those things that most people know, that most, uh, most Civil War generals of the highest rank are from West Point, but there hadn't been, it seemed, a huge amount of examination over what exactly that meant, if anything, uh, for the course and conduct of the war. So that's how... Uh, that's how I discovered the topic, and that's how uh, I ended up writing this book. 
Well, you know, I do remember that that image of the the peach blossoms from the I think it was the the Bruce Canton's version for young readers, uh, and, and I can picture the illustration that went with it. That that was very uh, formative for a, a lot of a lot of people who are on the show trace their interest to Bruce Catton. He really converted a, a huge number. So you, uh, Gary Gallagher, was your graduate advisor? Yes. And so, so you were, were trained with somebody everybody listening to the show has heard of, uh, and and you began working on this uh, thesis. Now, currently, you're at uh, the Naval Academy, is that yes. right? Yes. Yes. What What's the Civil War atmosphere like there? Um, as, as you might expect at the at that at a service academy, the Civil War is a pretty pretty uh, hot topic. It's I mean, I mean, it is I think generally at most schools um, there is. Uh, as you might expect, more of a, a naval focus. Uh, the war does come up, for example, in our introductory naval history class, which every naval academy midshipman is required to take. Uh, Craig Simons has actually uh, returned to us, to our good fortune, as a, as yeah. a visiting uh, endowed chair, even though he's actually technically emeritus. Uh, and, of course, he, he, uh, he was such a fixture at the academy for so long. Um, I'm a little bit distinctive, though, because the, the comical thing is, is, of course, I'm a really historian of the American Army. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of ended up at the Naval Academy, uh, but no, it's it's uh, it's it's obviously a a I, th- I think we certainly get a lot of interest there. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say more so than other schools. I mean, I think generally Civil War is usually a pretty popular class in most American colleges. So, um, uh, so uh, but it, it it's we certainly the, the courses certainly draw their their usual weight. Yeah, we we. Uh... Ours has always run well here at East Carolina. David Long was our Civil War historian for many years, uh, wrote The Jewel of Liberty on the 1864 election, and he just retired this past semester. So uh, he and I were kind of sharing the Civil War duties for a while, and now he's uh, decided to, to hang up his, his teaching tools, but uh, he'll still be around here. But you're absolutely right. The uh, the courses draw draw well everywhere. Of course, in a, at, a, at an academy, you get a national student body. You don't get a regional body. Does that make a difference? Do you think in how students respond? Well, the the funny thing I think is that um, it, we do by by statute draw uh, for people who don't know the core way you get the usual way you go to the naval academy is you get an appointment through your congressman or senator, and this is deliberately designed to mandate regional diversity. Um, but uh, there's definitely um, more more midshipping from the American South, from the foreign states of the Confederacy. Uh, <laughs> generally, have an interest more of an interest in the war and tend to to have more than their um, um, t- tend to be overrepresentative from a purely demographic perspective in the class. So I think we we you know we mirror that that larger national and cultural interest too to some degree also. Mm-hmm. Now the uh, speaking of the academy, I guess that brings us to West Point and the subject of your book. The the title you you were going to choose a different title for this book is that true? It was it was slightly, it, my my dissertation title is is slightly reversed. It's it's basically um, the old army uh, uh, in war and peace, West Pointers in the Civil War era. Comma eighteen fourteen to eighteen sixty five, and um, the reason that the this was titled that was because um, it, uh, was because it really is a story of the institution of the Antebellum Regular Army, of which West Point is is the most important component. Uh, but if, but this actually is a larger complex of, of of people and things and organizations that go into that. And um, UNC Chapel Hill, this, it's a perfectly fine title, but uh, but their belief was that West Pointers 
has a more of a, of a wider resonance. So basically, I would actually potentially, hopefully, sell more books. <laughs> There's always that. That's right. That's a critical consideration. <laughs> the the uh, well, so so West Point is well, the old army is, is is what we're looking at here. But West Point is central to it. Yes. Uh, let's talk about the the origins of the the old army. When when you say uh, when you say old navy, people think of the clothing store. But uh, when you say the old army. <laughs> uh, what, what do we mean here? It, uh, the the old army Matt Coffin uh, once I think I think in a book how the old army once once kind of Riley wrote that the old army is is arguably what everyone calls the army before the last war, uh, but mm-hmm. but in terms of a more coherent uh, uh, explanation, it's it's the it's the 19th century regular army uh, that spends most of its time fighting Indians. That is uh, composed of professionals, uh, especially on the officer side, long serving professionals. Uh, this is to distinguish it from the. The armies are mobilized to fight the various uh, larger American conflicts, whether it be uh, the Mexican War or the Civil War, most spectacularly so. So this is the army that exists in between those big spikes of mobilization. Um, and it's, it's a much smaller force. It's a force com- uh, comprised mostly uh, of dealing with constabulary duties on the, on the frontier. This is the 19th century aspect of it. And, um, and it's, it's composed of professionals, unlike the predominantly citizen soldier volunteers. And to some degree, of course, draftees, in the case of the Confederacy, who end up comprising the, uh, the, 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 the larger Civil War armies. So before the war, then, this army, the, the small constabulary army that just deals with Indians and border issues, is is professional. And you contrast that with the, uh, the citizen-soldier tradition in American history. We think of the revolution, we think of the Minuteman uh, grabbing the musket from the mantelpiece and going out, coming back to farm. Uh, the old army is very distinct from that. Yes, it's it's um, it's it's distinct because um, it's it's uh, for a variety of reasons. One, it does have more training because there are professionals, but um, perhaps more importantly, it believes that, that such training is necessary um, and indispensable for for actually being able to conduct military operations in an effective way. So, one of the tensions you get uh, during the American Civil War is that the the average American still very much believes in the uh, that minimum tradition you just described. Um, also sees that citizen-soldier tradition as being crucial to the preservation of the American Republic, um, and therefore draws on actually fairly plausible historical examples of how professional military uh, armies usurped civilian power in the Roman Republic, uh, Cromwell. Um, and therefore, not only sees the citizen soldier as kind of this uh, thing they're fond of, and it's not just sort of cultural affection; it's also a fear that uh, that uh, of Caesarism that if a, 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 a prof- an army of professionals might be tempted uh, by an unscrupulous general to one day attempt to to uh, to, to institute a military dictatorship, um, and so you have that very strong and powerful. Uh, cultural strain, uh, and then you have this small group of, of officers who see um, arms as a profession and therefore believe that there needs to be some kind of formal training process or it's a specialized body of knowledge that requires its own sort of independent means of, of uh, evaluation and verification, and West Point is a very important part of that, uh, that officers need to be trained. Of course, West Point is the primary place to do that, and that West Point graduates have the special expertise that gives them a special amount of authority in times of war, and there will be a lot of disagreement over this issue, um, especially in the North during the Civil War. 
so one might question, you know, how how much expertise does one need with the technology of the mid nineteenth century? What what we'll do here now is take a short break. We'll come back and, and ponder that question and some others. Uh, we're talking today with Wayne Shaw, author of West Pointers in the Civil War: The Old Army in War and Peace. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and we'll be right back with more Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market hey did you know voice america has partnered with the kidstar network to expand their reach through voice america kids voice america kids will feature talk radio for kids by kids along with special event programming and live broadcasts Each program is conveniently archived for on-demand listening at any time. Please check our archives for the latest events and happenings on voiceamericakids.com. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back. To Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We're talking today with Wayne Xia. He's the author of West Pointers and the Civil War, The Old Army in War and Peace. During the break, uh, I'm glancing at my email and the dean's office says summer school is approved. There will be funding to teach the usual handful of courses we offer every summer. Uh, every year they warn us it might not happen this year, the budget might not stand it, and then every year it comes through and uh, it's a big relief. So the show moves ahead. Let's put real life back to the side and get back into the 19th century. We were talking in the first half about, first uh, segment rather, about the old army, the army before the Civil War, the uh, the regular army trained, uh, officers trained at West Point. And Wayne, the question that I wanted to ask you is, is what what really is there to learn? Did, did they not really just study engineering at West Point? Was there really much military tactical thinking going on? Uh, you've got a smoothbore musket and a bayonet. Uh, what, what else, you know, march in a straight line? Is there anything else they needed to know? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of times uh, some degree of, of confusion about this, and hopefully I, I wrote my book hoping at least, at least to spell this. West Point is preeminently an engineering school, uh, where, um, and it is for a long time really the, the best place to, to get a technical scientific education in the United States because a lot of these traditional colleges like Yale or Harvard focus on, on the liberal arts and things like relearning Greek and Latin. But one of the great ironies is that the crucial military expertise uh, that becomes so important during the Civil War at West Point is the very basic small unit drill that every West Point cadet gets, um, which is by itself uh, not necessarily terribly complicated, although it requires certainly uh, a certain commitment and time and resources. But the, the important thing about this is that it's the only place, really, uh, in the United States where you can get that kind of professional background. And, of course, the cadets will then go on the go on to the regular army where they'll become familiar with things like the, the way basic army administration works and the, the, the bureaucratic systems that need to, to, to do that. But these are all very, very basic forms of, uh, of military expertise. Um, this shouldn't be confused with uh, sort of the high 
text sort of, you know, contemporary warfare is, in fact, much more complicated. It involves, which is why most uh, modern Western armies rely on professionals, because it is of such a level of, of commitment in terms of time, resources to, to build that competence. Uh, but the problem is that uh, 19th century warfare, although it isn't, terribly complicated. It does still require some training and background, and the reality is the average American never acquires this at any time, um, especially things like small unit drill, which is, in fact, still the way that military formations you move and fight on the battlefield. And without this basic training, armies are basically just mobs of people. Uh, and the only people who, who get this training, for the most part, in a systematic way, uh, are West Point graduates, um, and then who actually get to see this work out in an actual military setting because of, of their, their, their need to serve after graduation as officers in the regular army. Now, you argue that, that it's this training that makes the American army uh, so successful in Mexico, that, that uh, basically they, they've got officers who know what they're doing, and, and that there's an imbalance in competence between the two armies. Yes. In, in the case of the Mexican War, the Mexican War is an inter- interesting case because the, the first force that's sent with, with Taylor down to the Texas border that fights those initial battles uh, in northern Mexico are almost all professionals. Um, and even later on during Scott's Veracruz expedition in 1847, the core of the army is still comprised of regulars, in large part because the army is so small. Scott has something around twelve to 13,000 men. Um, and therefore, um, the, the old army is able to be kept whole. It's supplemented, uh, in the case of, of, the, of the Veracruz campaign, by a, 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 a reinforcement of civilians of civil uh, citizen-soldier volunteers. But the core of it is, a, is, this, is this professionalized regular army, and that they are, they are in, in turn fighting a uh, Mexican force that is dealing with uh, internal divisions uh, that is, fr- quite frankly, not as professional. And although it is usually larger, um, that superiority and competence is, is going to be very significant for, for uh, American military success during the conflict. During the Civil War, uh, the armies are vastly larger. Um, to take it, for example, First Bull Run, the Union Army there is already 35,000 men, which is smallish, actually, by, by Civil War standards, and there it's simply not possible. And also, of course, the regular army splits. A big chunk of the officer goes Confederate. So, so that, that, is, that is a big, big point of difference there. The, uh, the traditional argument going back to... Uh, uh, well, well, back before Bruce Catton and, and Bell Wiley and... and Carried on into the late 20th century with uh, McQuinney and Jameson and others, uh, the argument is that uh, what worked in Mexico—the the attack with the cold steel, the uh, uh, the, the shock attack by the infantry uh, pushing the artillery into the front lines—these things worked, uh, but they didn't because against an enemy with smoothbore weapons that could only shoot uh, 100 yards, maybe. In the 1850s, you got the the spread of the the rifled musket. So by the Civil War, many troops, uh, it takes a while, but eventually most uh, have this new weapon, and that makes the old tactics obsolete. That's what we've all learned over the years. Um, I've argued otherwise in in all for the regiment. Uh, You don't adopt this technological determinism either, I believe. No, I'm, I'm definitely uh, I'm definitely in Earl Hess's camp, <laughs> this, mm-hmm. right? You know, who wrote a whole book just focusing on this issue, uh, which which I think was provocatively tied with something like the rifle musket in the Civil War myth and reality or the something. Myth, right? That's right. Yes. <laughs> um, 
and and uh, yeah yeah that the 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 obvious for me the difference in in terms of it is certainly true that in these these tactics work in the Mexican war but for me the reason is because you know, I call this an equilibrium of competence you have in the civil war armies that both armies come from similar backgrounds or their raw material is, is roughly comparable in terms of the average Confederate soldier, the average Union soldier, are, are both of, of equal fighting worth, for lack of a better term. Their officers are roughly, in terms, equal equal value. Um, and therefore, if it's, of course, harder to obtain a decisive offensive decision, when you have, uh, unlike the case in Mexico, where the Americans do have superiority in terms of military competence, they are, of course, uh, it's 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 been much more possible to do what happens, which is to to obtain these decisive battlefield decisions. But the issue there is 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 there a superiority in terms of um, um, operational capability, right? And this and those things, the things that most count most in that are things like morale, sort of motivation, uh, uh, basic professional competence, and things like that. And for me, weapons technology is not uh, is 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 at best a subordinate. It is a subordinate factor in that uh, because of the fact that the rifle musket is still limited it's you know it's 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 as Earl Hess shows its ability its range is only u- usable by m- soldiers who have the proper training which most do not um, there's the issue of how uh, distances are obscured by uh, smoke uh, by terrain um, and and uh, various other factors and also as you mentioned uh, early in the war many troops don't have uh, rifle muskets. I mean, this famous volley that fell Stonewall Jackson is a smooth war volley, and that's as late as 63. Uh, if you look at Grant's memoirs, uh, he talks about his own troops exchanging their smooth bores, some of them at least, not, of course not all of them, for, for Enfields after the siege of Vicksburg. So this is, this is fairly late in the war. So uh, for me, it, 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 focusing on the rifle musket just doesn't, uh, is, 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 not, is, is not a way of explaining this, prop, this real problem of why Civil War battles tend to be indecisive. Well, pushing pushing another step in that direction, the if you go to the evidence, the written evidence, uh, when you read the the official records, again and again, the the opening volley will will be delivered in a battle at, at a range under two hundred yards. Uh, it, it's rare to find accounts of, of of full use of the rifled musket's capability up to three or four hundred yards. Uh, so, so in that sense, that that would again stand to argue that that. That's what's going on here. But let me ask you about this indecisiveness question, because uh, this was something I did argue somewhat extensively in the case of the Army of the Cumberland, uh, that it was based on, uh, or the Army of the Ohio, as it was originally called, that the, the, the unit cohesion uh, based on, on units being recruited together, uh, of, of knowing each other, of training together uh, within the regiment, created the, these tightly knit groups that could not be broken up in combat, and I, although I didn't make the argument explicitly, I would do so here. The, both sides are, are organized the same way. So you've got these mirror image armies, uh, which sounds like what you're saying with the equilibrium of, of competence. They can't destroy each other, but they can take an enormous amount of punishment uh, because their, their small unit cohesion is so great. And thus, the decision becomes almost impossible. Yes. I, 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 w- I would also add that... Um, the additional problem is, I think it's certainly uh, absolutely correct to say that, that Civil War armies have, at their base level, very high levels of cohesion, very high levels of motivation, um, mm-hmm. and they can absorb a huge amount of punishment. 
so you've got a high level of cohesion. And then for me, the other, the other variable in this is that at the top level, you have a huge deficit in the ability to, to manage large unit operations and coordinate them together. Uh, because, a large part because no one has any experience with it. You know, Pearl Paul Irwin McDowell at the Battle of Bull Run, he's got an army bigger than Winfield Scott, who's the only person around who's really led a full-sized army on campaigning in the entire American army, and who by 1861 is too, too old and infirm to take the battlefield. And even Scott had only about a Civil War division's worth at Veracruz. You know, managing these large armies in an age where people need to remember there are no radios, <laughs> right? Generals are working off of things like sound. You know, they have, they have to send their orders by, by sending a rider to go find the unit. It's all, it's, these are all immensely, inherently difficult problems. Uh, and for, for officers in both armies, commanders who, who will almost certainly have to take some time. I mean, if you look at you look at Robert E. Lee, who becomes um, a great commander, if you look at his early campaigns in West Virginia, where he, he obviously is struggling with this problem because, because he ha- even he has no experience with this, uh, despite his extremely distinguished Army career. Uh, so in order to get that decision, you have to be able to coordinate these, these, uh, these large units to do things, be able to do things like exploit um, the small openings that are made by uh, by local units, and it's 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 beyond the capability of of the Civil War armies for the most part. And then you add to it this tremendous cohesion at the bottom level, as you point out. And of course, you're going to have uh, battles that are going to be involve a lot of punishment being dealt out by each side, but very rarely any kind of real breakthrough. I, I, the, the metaphor I used at one point describing this was they're, they're like. Dinosaurs with you know enormous bodies and powerful arms, but very tiny brains. Yes, yes. And, and they can crash into one another and do great damage and suffer great damage, but they can't put together a coordinated uh, maneuver to to achieve the decisive victory. Well, we're agreeing too much on this, so let me try and, and throw <laughs> something out that will uh, change things. When uh, at the Civil War Institute this summer at Gettysburg College, at one point you and I were sitting at a table with uh, with Gary Gallagher and. Joe Glatter and, and Joe was arguing with you about the the rifled musket uh, issue. He was taking, I think, the traditional view that it made a huge difference. Um, the, the, his fundamental point was: Would you rather have a rifled musket or a smoothbore musket, uh, the long range or the short range weapon, uh, if you were going to be in, in in Civil War combat? How how do you how did you respond to him? You know, I, yes, I remember that. It was very formidable, and I, I don't think I responded all that well, and I, I thought about it afterwards, and I would say, I think, I think Joe is certainly absolutely right, and we do know from the historical evidence that soldiers prefer having rifle muskets. Um, and even, even Earl Hess, even I would agree uh, certainly that the rifle musket uh, later in the war becomes extremely important, especially in uh, an environment such as the trench lines at Petersburg, where... One of the things people need to remember, we, we, the commonly the number we give bandied about is that uh, the effective range of a, of a rifle musket is 300 yards versus the effective range of a smooth bar is 100 yards. Mm-hmm. But when, when people say that, uh, one thing that isn't always clear is that when we say effective range for smooth bar at 100 yards, it means volley fire at another formation of troops lined up elbow to elbow and close shoulder. It's meaning, meaning that you, you, can't, you can't, even at 100 yards, it's hard to hit a man-sized target, even at 100 yards with a smooth bar. They're that 
colossally mm-hmm. inaccurate. Um, and you, you, can't, you, you need a rifle musket to be able to do that. So when you're in an environment um, like these um, prolonged siege operations or, or uh, sniping between trenches, a lot of skirmishing and things like that late in the war, uh, the rifle musket does, of course, become, uh, become a crucial portion of those operations. Um, but for me, you know, I think it, that's, that's, that's a separate issue, though, whether or not troops would prefer rifle musket, whether or not they're really important for, uh, for late, especially skirmishing operations and the kind of sniping you have, especially in the, in the trench lines at, at a place like Petersburg. The orthodox interpretation, though, went much farther than this. Uh, and you, you cite McWhiney and Jameson, the kind of standard view Hathaway and Jones certainly subscribe to this, which is that the driving factor, and this goes back to people like Dillardell Hart and J.F.C. Fuller, and also Arthur L. Wagner, uh, an American mm-hmm. Army officer in the late 19th century, who, who began a lot of the su- more sophisticated military history of the war, or helped begin some of it at least, um, which is that the rifle musket makes Civil War battles indecisive. And the presumption, of course, is that this, this is a process that begins as early as, as 1861. Uh, and for me, you know, there has to be a, a huge retreat from that very strong argument, that very sort of bold position, to something that's much more modest, uh, which is that all other being, things being equal, yes, a Civil War soldier to prove a rifle musket would need it for certain types of operations, especially in, in in, uh, in late in the war, uh, but that this indecisiveness, you know, I mean, I think Earl Hess is another great person to cite on this because, as you know, Earl has written this kind of massive multi-volume study of, of, of trench warfare during this, mm-hmm. the Civil War, and for him, you know, the reason the armies end up in this position is because they, they are in constant geographical proximity. They're always in contact with one another late in the war, and this is driven by the decisions of commanders, basically Grant being so aggressive. Uh, this is not driven by, by some kind of magical technological process uh, um, that, that starts early in the war with, with, the, with the introduction of these rifle muskets. Um, so you know, that's, that's, uh, that's the way I would respond. Uh, you know, historiographically, in the late 90s, uh, Patty Griffith first started raising yes. this idea that, that the, uh, the rifle musket was not the big changeover. Uh, which implied the, the Civil War was not the beginning of modern warfare. It was really more the last Napoleonic War. It implied that uh, the American Civil War wasn't as exceptional. And the response among American Civil War enthusiasts, not so much the Academy, but, but the, the readers of uh, you know, uh, Civil War Times Illustrated, was intense. People were very angry at that uh, argument. I guess I just raise that. Can you imagine uh, people caring that much uh, about such a such a point? Yeah, yes, I can because um, I, I think Americans are, are no different than uh, lots of other groups of people who, who want to make the, the the larger stories of history in some way center on themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I don't, I, you know, and I know, I mean. It, and the thing about the Civil War for me has always been the Civil War is, for me, the, the most important war in American history. Uh, and there are all sorts of powerful ways. I mean, I'm sure every, every, hist- I mean, I'm sure some of our two historians, for example, might disagree with us. But if you measure it in things like the social consequences, the, the, res- the resolution of this vexatious issue of federalism and central authority, or at least enough of a resolution, um, and of course, these questions are not fully resolved, but they're resolved to a great degree. Um, 
the end of slavery, um, which doesn't solve, of course, race relations, the larger problems of race relations, but which solves the problem of slavery, at least. Mm. Um, and also just the, the, the vast amounts, you know, one of five uh, Southern white men of, of military age dies in the Civil War, which is an extraordinary statistic when you think about it. It, it really um, is. We're going to have to take another short okay. break and come right back. We'll talk more about the consequences of the American Civil War and other things with Wayne Shia. He's our guest today on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Are you easily hooked? Are you not into the old bait and switch? Do you like to get yourself into fishy situations? We've got a show that will help you with all of these situations and much more. Tune in to Sportsman's Addiction, Got Fish or Got Rum, with MJ Atong, along with her counterparts, Captain Ozzy Gonzalez and Roddy Hayes. If you're in the fishing industry, a weekend hobbyist, or just like to take a nice fishing trip every so often, this show is for you. Sportsman's Addiction, Got Fish or Got Rum, airs live Fridays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with the author of West Pointers and the Civil War, The Old Army in War and Peace. He is Wayne Wysang She. And he is uh, the uh, a professor at the United States Naval Academy currently. We've been talking about the effect of the rifled musket in the last uh, section, uh, a subject near and dear to to my interest. And there was a review of of this book in one of the the new journals, might have been the Journal of Civil War Era. Uh, I just glanced at it, and uh, the the last line pointed out: this is a book for people who know a lot about the Civil War. <laughs> And I thought, uh, this is right up, uh, you're, uh, Wayne, you're in the right place today because the listeners know a lot about the Civil War on this show. Uh, you, you have the audience you've been looking for. Um, the, the discussion of, of you know, how, how this technology affected the war, uh, whether it was, in fact, uh, the, the equilibrium of competence between the armies more than the, the technology that led to indecisive battles, uh, this really is an interesting book and, and, and worth uh, listeners, uh, if you really do know a lot about the Civil War and why else would you be listening to this show, uh, then, then you ought to go and get yourself a copy of this. It is from the UNC Press, and, and they always do a nice job producing their books, too. Uh, Wayne, I wanted to ask you a, a broader question, not really reflected in here, but one uh, I, I know you have thoughts about uh, the the perennial chestnut of the the total war question. Um, is the United States Civil War, the American Civil War, a a total war? Is it the first modern war, or is it uh, a war that looks back to the early nineteenth century? For me, uh, and you know, I actually in that same journal, the Journal of Civil War Era, I actually wrote a, a kind of a longish historiographical essay where I basically the short answer is no, it's not <laughs> a modern war, it's not a total war, um, and uh, and uh, the, the reason um, 
as and I don't think it's I don't think Griffith is necessarily right that this looks back. Uh, this is not the last of the Napoleonic Wars. And for you know Griffith, if people don't know, was was a Brit and actually has written about the Napoleonic Wars, which is arguably one of the reasons why he made that argument. Mm-hmm. It's that the war is distinctly American, um, and that because of that, it's it's sort of inexplicable outside of the American context. Uh, the fact that, and European, one good way of looking at this, I think, is um, Jay Louvas, uh, who used to be at the Army War College, wrote a great, still, still the standard book on Amer- European military observers looking at the mm-hmm. American Civil War. And one of the points that some of these observers made was that Americans could get away with this sort of um, crash mobilization at the beginning of a conflict, uh, these building of massive armies and accepting those armies being somewhat ineffective as they learn their business. Uh, because they were Americans, because they didn't have to worry about great power politics in the way that European states had to, like a France or Germany, and therefore things like that. So for me, the the United States is um, the the reality is is that the American ability to um, to inflict destruction on a vast scale, which is what we associate generally with total war, doesn't happen partly because. Um, in a way that looks forward to something like World War One, isn't the case because um, the story in the United States is not of 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 uh, the creation of those kind of mechanized forms of warfare. The other issue is part of total war we usually associate with uh, completely erasing the distinctions between civilian non-combatants and soldiers, uh, as was done is in effect by strategic air bombing during World War Two. And as a lot of scholarship, starting, I guess, with Mark Grimsley, uh, but also including folks like Joe Glatar, have shown even things like Sherman's March to the Sea, although there is a lot of property destruction, there is, there are big lines that are not crossed. Uh, troops do not gratuitously kill civilians. Um, uh, white women are almost never raped. Uh, African-American women, unfortunately, are more subject to sexual violence. But from what we know of the Civil War, it is a low-rape war, especially if you compare it to all these, all these sort of other conflicts, and that the violence is more or less restricted uh, to the battlefield. Also, the violence ends after the Civil War, um, for the most part. Yes, you have issues, obviously, with sort of political terrorism, for lack of a better term, in, in the Reconstruction South, that plagued by this. But you don't have this sort of fixation guerrilla complex that you have is something like the Vendée during the Napoleonic period in France or things like that. So it isn't, uh, in my opinion, hit that those levels of violence uh, that we usually associate with total war and also that level of uh, mechanization and, and technological. People need to remember, for example, that breech-loading weapons are actually far more important than, musket, than the, the, extensive, the extensive range of the rifle musket, the ability to, to fire prone and to load from the rear end of a rifle. Um, and that's that happens shortly after the Civil War, but not during the Civil War in, on, on the larger scale. It happens with the, with the German Wars of Unification. So, um, so my short answer is, you know, the United States it shouldn't be put in, in this kind of narrative that culminates in World War I and World War II. Well, you know, you, you point out that guerrilla war is not uh, widely engaged and that there is a, the bright line between soldier and civilian is maintained throughout the Civil War, and that, that's a big part of your your book on the old armies, is stressing that this is a, a nation-state war, that two organized armies fight one another, uh, that it's not just, just open season, random violence for everyone. But there seems to be uh, a trend pushing the other way in, in contemporary historiography. Uh, you know, Daniel Sutherland's book on, on guerrillas, uh, 
won all kinds of awards, and, and he argues that, that the guerrillas are not a sideshow; they really are almost the main war. Uh, that it, that it's everywhere, not just in, in Missouri, uh, Tennessee, but Kentucky and the Upper South, and anywhere the, the Union forces are. That, that it's it's endemic, and that we've underestimated it. Seems to be the argument that uh, the traditional view that you just espoused, that Mark Neely has argued that, that there is a line uh, that maybe we're, we're idealizing our own war. Is that possible? Yes, but I, I guess I, you know uh, Sutherland's book rightly won prizes. I mean, it is the book. Uh, what's the, the the savage conflict is the title, right? Right, um, that's right. Um, and I guess my reply was would be that you know one of the interesting things as I read his argument is that it is decisive par- partly because. Uh, guerrilla war as a viable way for the Confederacy to win the war doesn't work. Right? Mm-hmm. That that uh, it, it sort of becomes a decisive way in which uh, the the inability of the Confederacy to to manage the guerrilla violence in an effective way because it, it spirals out of control and angers Southern civilians, and also that it causes the North to engage in much more aggressively punitive military policies in response. Actually, is, is a big rack factor in leading to Confederate defeat. Um, but my reply would be though that that um, I, I certainly think amongst, uh, and I think this is a crucial issue, because this is a war about, um, uh, in large part, a, a war of wills. And this is where this war is modern, arguably, a war between the northern capacity will, the, the average northern, the northern, larger northern public opinion's willingness to prosecute the war versus the Confederacy's willingness to resist. Um, is that, from what historical evidence I think we have, it, the contemporaries clearly focused on the big conflicts. Uh, and if you look at things uh, like the way morale is being driven in large part by these large dramatic battles, uh, which are having the most political significance, whether it be Sherman's capture of Atlanta just when the Lincoln administration's political prospects seem so weak, uh, whether it be uh, Vicksburg's fall, they, you know, things like this. You know, contemporaries seem to certainly talk about the big battles more. Also, you know, I think Sutherland's, I, I, if I remember correctly, his, his, his estimate of how many guerrillas actually existed, I think, was something like 50,000. Maybe I'm doing this off memory. For me, that's still, the numbers don't. I mean, if guerrilla warfare was really decisive, I would expect to see a lot more people dying and a lot more people participating in it, in all honesty. So, also, I would point out, and I don't think this is true, I mean, Sutherland very, is a very careful scholar in his introduction. He he clearly uh, um, separates his story quite rightly from contemporary American military conflicts. But if some of the other books we've had, things like Mackey's book, are actually um, um, uh, um, the book from, I'm forgetting the name. There's another book written by a serving, two, two of these books have come by serving army officers. <laughs> and I think, I think a lot of the turn in guerrilla warfare is in all honesty a partly a post-Vietnam uh, and also a post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan. Uh, it's positive in the sense I think the, the guerrilla warfare certainly deserved more attention. You know, that's what Feldman, I guess, really started with that book uh, a couple of decades ago now. But I think there, was all, there would also be a mistake of putting too much weight on it. Um, and I think at least some of the interest is, is coming from, in fact, uh, um, the fact that in most American military conflicts of, of the last 30 or so years have tended to be ones involving insurgencies. And the reality is that the Civil War is a mid-19th century war, and it's, it's coming out of a different uh, cultural and historical milieu.
Now, you yourself spent time in, in Iraq with the State Department. Uh, yes. What did you do, and did that influence, how did that influence what you wrote about the Civil War? Um, it, it, it didn't in the sense that uh, it couldn't. I mean, I remember actually having the very bizarre episode of going through my page proofs in Iraq <laughs> for an hour. Uh, and having an American Army officer, the, uh, the S3, the operations officer, walking to my office late at night as I'm looking through this after my, my duties were... The, the short of it, what well, I did Iraq, I was essentially a political officer, such as my assigned to one Iraqi district, which was about 150,000 Iraqis lived there. So most of my job was was very ethnically diverse. So most of my job really involved listening to different leaders of ethnic political parties complaining about each other and trying to get everyone to, to be calm about various sources of friction, for lack of a better term. Um, but um, uh, so it, you know, the book the book was mostly done by the time I deployed, so I, it couldn't have um, a lot of effect. And all the honesty, the, uh, what I did in Iraq, what I did in Iraq was very much at, um, at you know I was essentially a field officer. I didn't I I didn't stay. I wasn't at the embassy. Uh, I got outside the wire three times a week, uh, generally about. So I, I I was sort of as close to the spears in as as a civilian can get, which doesn't. I want to emphasize, it doesn't really involve that much danger, but it was, it was more forward deployed than most people. Um, I was only a civilian official, for example, at the smallish army base. Um, I think um, it did match up with, with, with one of the things I emphasize in my book, which is the importance of, of um, what we would call in Iraq the ground truth and the importance of, what, of, of these kind of, you know, for me, a lot of military history, uh, even Civil War military history where it's, is, is sometimes a little bit too concerned with strategic level issues, with the way we, you know, the sort of movements of armies as represented as, as arrows on a map, um, and which then involve a lot of times more strategic uh, questions. And a lot of times uh, I think there's not enough focus on the sort of the basic difficulties of moving military units, of keeping them in the field, of doing these very simple and basic things, uh, but you know, which has, as, uh, as the Prussian military philosopher Karl von Clausewitz says, you know, easy things in war become hard uh, because the environment of danger, uh, because the role of chance plays, because the issues of confusion and chaos. And we still, I think, sometimes feel, I feel that we, military sources of war, still don't quite focus on that as much as maybe we could as a field as a whole. Obviously, individual historians are a different matter. Um, there's a great uh, passage in, uh, I think, it's Stephen Vincent Benet's uh, John Brown's body, uh, where he talks about the the blocks on the map uh, and contrasts them with the, the living flesh and blood people actually on the battlefield, and and that is a point all historians and all readers ought to remember uh, uh, when thinking about this kind of thing. It's a very worthwhile one to keep in mind. Uh, you just got a, a, a very short time left. Uh, what are you working on currently? Um, I'm actually working on a, a very different, not very historical book in honesty. On, um, uh, I'm actually in sabbatical right now at Yale, although it's about to end literally in a few weeks. I go uh. back to the academy on January 1. I'm working on a book on very contemporary American ideas about war and how they owe a lot to uh, Clausewitz's famous uh, argument that war should be sort of a rational instrument of, of larger state policy, um, to, to summarize it. And one of the things I want to argue is that, that this has become at times problematic because although we, of course, want war to be a rational instrument of policy, the reality is that 
it's it's such a phenomenon driven by an internal dynamic that involves things like escalation and uh, you know there's a tendency a lot of times in wars to become more violent people get angry for lack of a better term and then they sort of tit for tat um also that they're they're so uh, plagued by things like chance and things like that, that that is not, um, that, people forget that. Actually, what Kosovitz talks about some of these things, too, those passages tend to be ignored by most people except for historians. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so, so, and that, this is reflected in, in certain um, uh, American preferences for things like high-tech means of war through things like drones, and there's a promise that these can be very precise and obtain you know, a lot of times very ambitious and worthy policy objectives, but belief at very low cost. And I think this this leads us into various sorts of problems. Um, in terms of a bigger civil war book, the book I want to do after this this kind of quirky thought piece I just I just gave you, mm-hmm. um, I'd kind of like to write a book, kind of like Drew Faust's book about death, but about civil war killing, where the focus is more on cultural ideas uh, about violence and how they play out with the lived reality of the civil war. So while Faust so ably focused on, you know, the consequences of, of military conflict. You know, for me, killing is different because soldiers on the battlefield are not just on the receiving end, they're on the inflicting end. So this, this the, is something... Um, it, it, I'm, I'm hearing the idea of a sort of David Grossman's on killing taken to the Civil War. <laughs> yeah! Uh, um, but, I'm, I'm going to have to, sadly, kill off our conversation because we're out of time. Uh, way too soon. Uh, Wayne, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and uh, I know our listeners will want to go out and get a copy of West Pointers and the Civil War, the Old Army in War and Peace. Wayne, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, thank you always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. (laughs) 